This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Hearing loss is distressing, whether it occurs later in life or in childhood. Now researchers are starting to unpick the genetic causes behind some of these problems. At the moment we know quite a lot of genes that are involved in childhood deafness, but we know very, very little about the genetic basis of hearing impairment as we get older. Plus, mice on drugs, stress and death, and a wobbly gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for January 2014 with me, Dr Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Around one in six people in the UK has some kind of hearing loss, including most people over 70, and the number is rising. Professor Karen Steele, now at King's College London but formerly at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, is an expert in hearing loss in old age and has played a major role in tracking down some of the genes involved. I spoke to her about how far she and her team have come and how they're trying to use this knowledge to help people at risk of losing their hearing. We've identified a large number of genes, well over 100 genes, that are involved in deafness, either in humans or in animal models, and we, we use the mouse mainly as our animal model. We know a lot of these genes are very different sorts of genes. They vary from uh, genes called transcription factors, which control the activity of other genes, or they could be structural proteins. They could encode structural proteins. There's a whole variety of them. When I started working on the genetics of deafness, I thought that all genes involved in deafness were going to turn out to be ion channel genes. But of course, it wasn't. The first one that we identified was a, a gene called myosin-7A, which is an unconventional myosin molecule. That's a kind of a, a muscly sort of protein. That's exactly what you would think. There's lots of other myosins in the body that perform other functions other than muscular contraction. And this was one of them. And this one was very important for both hearing and for vision, as it turned out. And it turned out to be involved in a human disease called Usher's syndrome where children are born deaf and with a balance problem and then in the first 10 years or so of life they start to uh, develop visual problems as well until they lose their vision. So it's a very nasty disease for the children to have and identifying several of the genes involved in that has been a very useful start to thinking about how it could be treated. So we have genes that are involved in, in hereditary deafness and hearing problems. And then there's presumably genetic variations between us as, as humans that mean maybe some people will lose their hearing earlier as they get older or, or struggle with different aspects. Do we know if it's the same kind of genes involved or different sort of genes involved in different types of hearing problems? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. When you talk about hereditary deafness, I think most people are thinking about uh, individual families where some children are born with a hearing impairment and others are born without a hearing impairment. And that is very clearly a genetic and usually a single gene that's affected that's causing that, uh, that, that pattern of inheritance. But actually, genes do a lot more. As you say, there are lots of genes out there that, are, that vary from individual to individual, and uh, some of those genes can make us more or less likely to um, have damage to our hearing as a result of environmental problems, and some of them are important for the uh, maintenance, the long-term maintenance of the uh, hearing structure in the ear, and so as we get older, then it may well be that just a single gene can make us more likely to lose our hearing. So there's lots of different causes. At the moment, we know quite a lot of genes 
over 100, well over 100 in humans alone, that are involved in childhood deafness. But we know very, very little about the genetic basis of hearing impairment as we get older. And that's one of the main things that I moved here, here to King's College to study because um, it's, it's, a, it's a basic neuroscience question. is Why is hearing gradually deteriorating as we get older? Is it a general part of growing old? Or is it something that's very specific to the auditory system? And I think all the evidence is pointing to it being very specific. Not just because everything's falling apart. Exactly, yes, yes. So there's, there's lots of people who are um, very old who have perfect hearing and other people who are relatively young who have very poor hearing. So it's not just a general aspect of growing older. There are specific uh, factors that make our hearing progressively get worse as we get older at different rates from individual to individual. So how are you trying to get the answers to this question? I'm a geneticist basically so um, I'm always thinking about how we can use genetics as a tool to get an understanding of the molecular basis of hearing and progressive deafness, particularly progressive deafness because I think with progressive deafness then we have a much greater chance of being able to develop treatments. So progressive hearing impairment is the, is the main thing that I'm interested in and the technique I use is to look for single genes that uh, when they're mutated or changed will lead to a progressive hearing loss. I use the mouse as my main model system because there are many mouse models now or mouse mutants where they have a particular mutation in a particular gene that we've been able to show have progressive loss of their hearing and so we think mimic the human progressive hearing loss. How do you tell if a mouse is losing its hearing? We, we use a physiological measurement called auditory brainstem response measurements, or ABR. This is exactly the same technique that many hospitals use to screen newborn babies for deafness when they're born. So it's, it's, it's a non-invasive technique and it's a very powerful technique so, to carry out at different ages so that you can follow that progression of the hearing impairment in a mouse as it, as it gets worse and worse. We can distinguish lots of different aspects of the response including whether you need to deliver a, a higher level of sound um, in order to elicit a response and also whether different frequencies, so high frequencies or low frequencies, are responding at the right sort of threshold. This is quite important for humans because humans as they get older have a tendency to lose their sensitivity to high frequencies first. That's the earliest sign of progressive hearing loss. And we found a number of different mouse mutants with single gene mutations that did have progressive hearing loss starting at the high frequencies. So we think that these particular mouse mutants are going to be very useful to us in providing models for the normal natural history of progressive hearing loss in humans. So where would you like to see this research going maybe over the next five to ten years, given the pace at which everything's accelerating in science and technology? Well, we have some very good clues now. We have a number of different genes that we've identified as being involved in progressive hearing loss. Now we're in a position where we can start thinking about what molecular pathways those genes are involved in and whether those are pathways that we can manipulate, particularly using small molecules. So the traditional drug approach. This is an approach that really hasn't been very seriously uh, adopted in hearing. Most, most people think of uh, hearing being treated by using hearing aids or perhaps cochlear implants if it's a very severe hearing impairment. But those are prosthetic devices. Those aren't treating the hearing because the 
person still has the hearing impairment. Whereas we think that we should be able to develop some drugs or small molecules that will stop the progression of hearing impairment. But this is a long time off. We, th we think in the next few years, next two or three years, we should have some animal model work that will give us a proof of principle of using small molecules to stop the progression of hearing impairment. But developing that to get into the clinic is going to take a lot longer, as I'm sure you hear from many different diseases. It's always a long process to get uh, the, the initial concept of using a small molecule to treat a disease from an animal model into the clinic. So deafness is no different from that. That was Professor Karen Steele from King's College London. And now it's time to take a look at the latest genetics news with science writer Nell Barry. Hi Nell. Hiya. So the first story that I wanted to talk about was one about narcolepsy and flu. So an interesting connection between randomly falling asleep, which is the disease narcolepsy, and the flu virus. What's this about? Well, it seems that the link here is to do with the immune system, which as always is very fascinating, very complicated. What these researchers have found, this is people at Stanford University School of Medicine in the US and it's published in Science Translational Medicine, they've actually discovered that narcolepsy seems to be an autoimmune disease. So it's being caused by the immune system going a little bit haywire and attacking cells in the body that it shouldn't be targeting, which is really fascinating. It's very interesting because this affects about one in 3,000 people and the cause of it has been a complete mystery. It just causes people to, to randomly fall asleep. They have a lot of muscle weakness, a lot of problems. So what's the connection then with flu and the immune system? What's going on here? Well, it seems that what the immune system is doing in people with narcolepsy is it's actually latching on to a part, um, a, a molecule that's found in some types of brain cells, some types of neuron. And the reason it's doing that is because it's, it's found a similarity between this particular molecule and another one that's found in a type of flu called H1N1. So it, it's an accidental kind of bit of mimicry almost that's going on. So the immune system thinks, oh, that's a bit of flu and starts destroying whatever it is. But in fact, it's these brain cells that are involved in wakefulness. Exactly. So the immune system's going wrong. It's trying to do its job. It's trying to track down harmful pathogens in the body and destroy them, which, you know, it's great. It works very well at doing that. But clearly in this particular instance, it's being a little bit too clever. And it's very specific. It's found this bit of a protein that just randomly happens to match this part of the flu protein, it's also in these brain cells and that means that the immune system is actually attacking the brain cells and completely getting rid of them. Well this sounds like a very interesting coincidence but is it actually relevant to, to people? Do we know that? Well it looks like it could be interesting because it could mean that researchers can find a better way to help tackle the disease. They may even be able to find a way to test for narcolepsy using a blood test which would be really valuable because as you were saying, we, we haven't known up until now what the cause is. So it's very, very difficult to figure out who might have it, why they've got it, all these different types of things that we need to find out if we're going to be able to help people a bit better. I thought it was really interesting that they highlighted that in 2010 there was a study in China that showed there was an increase in narcolepsy in children, in a certain group of children living in areas where there was this big H1N1 flu pandemic. It's certainly a very interesting link that needs more research. Yeah, it's really interesting and they actually there's also some evidence from Scandinavia that when an H1N1 vaccine was used there, it actually led to a small increase in narcolepsy and it seems to be because they were training the immune system 
to react to H1N1 and it was also causing it to react to these cells in the brain at the same time. So interesting to see how that can work and how the immune system can have these different effects across the body. And certainly informed the development of flu vaccines as well. It'd be very interesting to see if these kind of accidental immune responses are behind other brain disorders, things like schizophrenia, which has been shown to have a link with autoimmunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it just seems like more and more the immune system has a part to play in many different kinds of illness, many types of reactions to different diseases. So I always think this type of stuff is really fascinating. There was another flu story I saw from scientists at the University of Melbourne, and they've published this in PNAS this month. They've discovered a genetic marker that can predict whether patients will have a more severe response to flu. This is a new strain of flu, H7N9, that's currently found in China. Tell me a bit more about this research. So this seems to be to do with the way a particular person will react to a type of virus. And if they've got higher than normal levels of cytokines as a result of a type of genetic variation, then they can get a really severe level of infection from some types of flu. And we all know that, you know, flu affects different people in different ways. It's always a nasty illness, but some people get really seriously ill. We know that many people can die from some strains of flu. So being able to say which people will react severely is absolutely crucial if we're going to find a better way of tackling it and making sure that future pandemics aren't such a big threat. It's interesting that what the research has found is people with this particular genetic variant, it's a protein called IFITM3 for the specialists out there, it leads to what's called a cytokine storm. This is where your immune system just goes crazy. It's creating all these molecules that, that stir up the immune system. So finding ways to understand that I think will be very important in managing these kind of responses. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, cytokine storms can be caused in different types of situations as well. So anything that teaches us more about that could be really beneficial to stopping people from getting affected by that type of thing. And the final story I thought was just quite amusing. It's research published in the journal Science from a team of US researchers, including some at the Jackson Lab, which is a huge mouse facility. And they've basically been putting mice on drugs. Yes, indeed. And actually what they found is very interesting. They're looking, they were looking at the way that mice respond to things like cocaine and methamphetamine using a strain of mice that's been bred for a long, long time. But actually what's happened over almost 100 years of this particular mouse strain being used is that different subpopulations have emerged. So although one lab mouse may look very much like another, they are in fact different in some quite crucial ways. And by looking at the way they responded to these different types of drugs, they've discovered that there are quite subtle but important changes within the same types of mice. I do think it's a bit sad they used black mice rather than water white mice for a bit of a Breaking Bad reference. But this research really does highlight uh, the importance of knowing what kind of mice you're dealing with. A lab mouse is not a lab mouse is not a lab mouse the world over. And these, the mice that they were looking at uh, came from the, the founder of the Jackson Laboratory, Clarence Cook Little, and this was back in 1921. And these mice are used all over the world. I remember seeing some research done in the 60s that said, you know, researchers, you need to be aware that there's a lot of differences in how mice strains that seem to be very similar respond to things like drugs. So it is a, a message for researchers using animals that, that they need to be very careful about what strains they use. Yeah, absolutely. And the scientists highlight that. And especially when you're looking at things like behavioural data, because it's so hard to unpick exactly what's going on there. So knowing about these very, very small genetic differences between the different mice that might be being used is really crucial. And actually what they do at the Jackson Laboratory is they try to make sure that they're kind of 
going back and refreshing the population of mice every so often so that they know exactly which strain they're using, they know exactly what types of changes might be there. Yeah, it's interesting. They use um, frozen IVF embryos to do that, so they're always going back to this stock of frozen embryos and they know exactly what they're like. Uh, but certainly fascinating research and probably one to watch in the future. Thanks very much, that's Nell Barry. And now it's time for a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. Writing in the journal Nature, an international team of researchers in Mexico and the United States has uncovered a new gene variation implicated in a raised risk of type 2 diabetes, particularly among Mexican and other Latin American people. Carrying a single high-risk version of the gene, called SLC16A11, increases the chance of developing type 2 diabetes by around 25%, while inheriting two copies of the risky gene, one from each parent, gives a 50% increase in risk. The higher risk version of the gene turned up in about half of all the people they looked at with Native American ancestry, including Latin Americans, potentially accounting for a significant proportion of the known increased risk of diabetes in these people. It's in about a fifth of East Asians and is relatively rare in people from Europe and Africa. The gene was previously missed in other genetic studies of diabetes, which focused mainly on European or Asian people, highlighting the importance of doing this kind of research across a wide range of populations. The gene seems to be involved in controlling the levels of a type of fat that's involved in diabetes, and the researchers hope their discovery will lead to improvements in the ways in which the disease is detected, prevented and treated. Researchers in the US have discovered that a gene variation that makes some people extra sensitive to stress could also boost the risk of heart attack and death in people with heart disease. Publishing their findings in the journal PLOS One, the team focused on variations in the 5-HTR2C gene, which encodes a serotonin receptor that's involved in responses to stress. People with a particular variation of the receptor are highly susceptible to the effects of the so-called stress hormone, cortisol. Cortisol is also involved in inflammation, metabolism and other factors that play a role in heart disease, so the scientists analysed DNA for more than 6,000 patients with heart disease. They found that people with the gene variation that increased their stress responses also had the highest rates of heart attacks and deaths over the six years of the study, even when other factors like age, weight and smoking were taken into account. The scientists think their research could help identify people at greater risk of heart attacks who might benefit from more intensive prevention and treatment options. Our faces are sculpted in the womb by cells called neural crest cells coming together and changing into bone, cartilage, nerves and more. Problems with this process lead to facial deformities, which can be extremely serious if they prevent a baby from feeding properly. Writing in the journal PLOS Genetics, a team of US researchers has now created a mouse genetic model that mimics a human condition called simnathia, where babies are born with fused upper and lower jaws and other problems with their faces. The team focused on a gene called FOXC1, which is switched on in neural crest cells in the developing embryo. Using genetic engineering techniques, they created mice lacking the FOXC1 gene and found that the mouse pups had facial deformities that were very similar to those seen in babies with Syngnathia. Although Syngnathia is relatively rare, around a third of all birth defects involve the head and face, so the researchers hope their new model will help to shed light on the origins of more common forms of facial deformity too. And if you want to find out more about those stories, the references are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Now it's time to delve into some of the issues around the genetics of childhood deafness with Professor Maria Bitnaglinjic from UCL's Institute of Child Health. 
I started by asking her where we are at the moment with hunting down genetic causes of hearing loss in childhood. We can only look for the really the most common genetic forms of hearing loss um, in childhood. So these are one or two, well, maybe three or four um, genes that are commonly mutated in childhood onset hearing loss or genes which give rise to a distinctive clinical picture which we can pick out and identify clinically as um, belonging to a, a subset of genetic causes. Now, obviously, it's only useful to identify something if you can actually then do something about it. It's not very useful to say to a child, oh, you've got this gene problem, sorry. What can we now do with that knowledge, knowing that a child has a particular gene fault? In terms of treatment, treatment is still very limited, but the kinds of benefits that might come out of having a, a molecular cause are that you might know that one particular type of deafness is associated with other medical problems, so in which case that knowledge would be useful, because having made the diagnosis, you would then go and look for the other medical problems and put in place maybe treatments or screening for that. So I'm, I'm thinking of syndromes or syndromic causes of deafness. Um, actually treating the deafness itself is more difficult, but if you knew that a particular type of deafness was likely to progress or get worse, then again you might be more likely to refer the child on for something like a cochlear implant assessment. Um, so in that respect there is some you know, there are some benefits to be gained. The other benefits really are in terms of genetic counselling. So it might not be very interesting for the child themselves to know their cause of deafness, but for the parents it might be very important. You know, if they're thinking of having more children, then knowledge that their child's deafness is genetic or that it is or is not associated with other medical problems might have a major influence on whether or not they decide to have more children. And what sort of syndromes and, and types of hearing loss are we talking about with these genes that we do know about? Well, some of them are, involve major clinical problems and others are just uh, minor clinical features that just help you to make a diagnosis. So one of the, perhaps the major syndromes would be something like Usher syndrome, where congenital hearing loss is associated with later onset, by which I mean sort of teenage onset, of retinal degeneration that ultimately leads to um, blindness. So that's clearly a very disabling condition um, and an important diagnosis to make for the reasons that I've just outlined. Um, other syndromic forms of deafness um, maybe don't have major clinical complications, so something like Wardenberg syndrome um, includes the association of deafness but with unusual pigmentation often of the hair or skin or eyes and that doesn't cause the person any medical problems but it helps us to identify the cause how it's inherited and what the to some extent what the you know the future will hold for that person and where do you see us going in maybe maybe 5 to 10 years with moving from the, the knowledge gained in the lab, from the, the animal research and the big genetic studies mm. that are tracking down these genes, where would you like to see that heading in terms of how we can improve the outcomes for patients? I think there will be much better diagnosis, so the proportion of children and families in, in whom you can actually say, well, this is the cause, I think that's going to um, take another leap forward. Um, I think 
what we know about the time course of some forms of deafness, I think, is really also going to improve. Because at the moment, although we know a number of genes um, that can cause hearing loss in humans, we maybe that our clinical knowledge is based on a handful of cases. So once that handful then becomes hundreds of cases, you get a much better idea of what that type of deafness involves or will look like or you know what will happen over time. Um, I think we will be able to, as a result of that, maybe predict better which children will get more benefit from cochlear implants. So some children appear to do very well after cochlear implants and some do far less well. Now there, there might be lots of factors for that, but one of those factors might be the cause of their hearing loss. And if you could subdivide uh, what's at the moment a very mixed group of children into different groups and then follow them up, I think that will be very useful. And of course, I suppose, ultimately, one aims to prevent progressive deafness and maybe to treat um, some forms of deafness. And I think once we understand better about why people are deaf, um, then we can begin to tackle those much more difficult um, aims. Slightly changing tack, one of the other interests of your research group is studying how hearing can be damaged mm. um, through things like drugs and the genetic yeah. link to that. Can you explain a bit more about what's going on there? Yes, we are interested in a particular type of hearing loss which essentially is a genetic predisposition to hearing loss after a group of antibiotics called aminoglycosides. So if you have this genetic predisposition and you have these antibiotics, um, you can experience a really rapid deterioration in your hearing, which is irreversible. And of course, you know, that, that begs the question of if you know who these people are, then surely you just don't give them these antibiotics. Um, and of course that's the obvious thing, but you know, one has to try and work out how they cause this type of hearing loss and the best way of trying to pick up people who are sensitive. It does seem that more and more we are understanding how our genetics make us almost, I guess, unique in how we respond to the drugs and the treatments that are available. Yeah. Do you think this is going to be an increasingly important field in the future? I think it has to be. I think, you know, um, all of those sort of drug reactions that one learns about as a, a medical student and a junior doctor, you know, you're beginning to realise now that these are probably all genetically based and they are likely, I think, all to be explained by genetic, the genetic makeup of a person within the next decade. And to me, that's really fascinating. All of these rare idiosyncratic drug reactions are likely to be genetic. What first got you interested in studying deafness and, and hearing loss? That's a very good question and I, I as many people do, I, I think you come to it in a rather roundabout way. I was very fortunate when I came here to the Institute of Child Health as a young geneticist that an interest in genetic hearing loss had already been established um, by some of the researchers who preceded me, so it was very easy um, kind of slot in. <laughs> yes, to see that it, you know, it was going to be a field that was opening up. You know, we had um, we had an excellent team of um, paediatric audiological uh, physicians who'd built up the department here really from nothing. Um, we were one of the first centres to do 
paediatric cochlear implantation. We had a fantastic clinical genetics department and um, it was realised that actually genetic hearing impairment was an area that had been really neglected in terms of clinical study. So it, it was an ideal um, field to, to enter really. And of course, as soon as you enter into a, a clinical or a research field, you know, you meet other people who inspire you or you meet patients that you remember or whose stories, you know, somehow um, touch you really and, and spur you on to, to try and find out more. That was Professor Maria Bittner-Glindrich from UCL. And now it's time for our Gene of the Month. And this time it's Head Bobber, a genetic fault explored last year by Professor Karen Steele and her team, who we heard from earlier. Head bobber mice have characteristic ear problems, including bobbing their heads, obviously, going round in circles, balance problems and deafness. Although the precise gene fault hasn't been tracked down yet, it's due to a missing portion of mouse chromosome 7, which contains three genes, as well as some control switches for nearby genes. These genes seem to be important for the growth and organisation of the inner ear in the womb, which creates the parts responsible for hearing and balance. Importantly, this mirrors a genetic fault in humans with similar hearing and balance problems, which are due to a missing portion of chromosome 10, the comparable region to mouse chromosome 7. The researchers hope the head bobber mice could be a good model for deafness caused by these gene faults and help to shed light on the condition in humans. And finally, I just want to remind you about the Communicating Your Science workshop being run in April by the Genetic Society. It's for PhD students and postdocs working in genetics who want to learn more about communicating their research from some of the top experts in the country. Find out more on the Genetic Society website. That's genetics.org.uk. I'll be back again next month looking at the genetics of smell. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or just tweet at Naked Genetics. And don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Music